Hello, friends. Registration is now open for next year's Exiles in Babylon conference, and I cannot wait for this conference. Here's a few topics that we're going to wrestle with. The future of the church, disability in the church, multi-ethnic perspectives on American Christianity, and a conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering. We have Eugene Cho, Elise Fitzpatrick, Matt Chandler, Michelle Sanchez, Justin Gibney, Devin Stolomar, Hardwick, the list goes on and on. Joey Dodson's going to be there. Um, Greg Boyd and Clay Jones, are, they're going to be engaging in this conversational debate on the problem of evil and suffering. And of course, we have to have Ellie Bonilla and Street Hymns back by popular demand. And Tanika Wyatt and Evan Wickham will be leading our multi-ethnic worship again. We're also adding a pre-conference this year. So we're going to do a, um, an in-depth scholarly conversation on the question of women in ministry featuring two scholars on each side of the issue. So uh, doctors Gary Bashirs and Sydney Park are on the complementarian side and doctors Cynthia Long-Westfall and Philip Payne on the egalitarian side. So March 23rd to 25th, 2023, here in Boise, Idaho. We sold out last year and we'll probably sell out this year again. Uh, so if you want to come, if you want to come live, then I would register sooner than later. And you can always attend virtually if you can't make it out to Boise in person. So all the info is at theologyintheraw.com. That's theologyintheraw.com. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is my friend Jay Kim. Jay is a uh, the lead pastor at Westgate Church in the Silicon Valley. He's also the author of Analog Church and the recently released Analog Christian, uh, which uh, forms the better part of our conversation. We talk about all things digital related, and uh, a, b- a big part of our conversation really focuses on just the addictive nature of social media and smartphones and the internet as a whole, which I think is a huge, huge uh, discipleship conversation that needs to be had and continue to be had. And uh, that becomes a big part of our conversation. So please welcome back to the show, the one and only Pastor J.K. Jay, you were on the podcast, um, if I remember correctly, it was right in the middle or the beginning of the 2020 pandemic, because um, you had yeah. written yeah, wrote a book on digital media and the church and everything, and it was so timely because <laughs> <laughs> everybody was going online, uh, which, yeah. yeah, I don't know if you like planned it, obviously you didn't plan it that way, but um, you just came out <laughs> with another book, uh, Analog Christian, Cultivating Contentment, Resilience, and Wisdom in the Digital Age. Can you, um, well, for those, why don't you just briefly describe your first book and then let's dive into the second book and how do these uh, play off each other? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's so fun chatting with you again, Preston. Um, Yeah. The first book, Analog Church. Yeah. It was released in March of 2020. I I remember the release date was like two weeks after our church had to shut down and not gather in person. And then I release a book about why it's so important to be in person. (laughs) So that was, yeah, I mean, obviously super ironic, but in hindsight, it was, I'm, I'm grateful for it in a weird way, just because if, if there was anything I would want to say in the midst of the pandemic, it would have been that book. So yeah, yeah, that came out in March of 2020. It was really a book about the intersection between our ecclesiology and the digital age. Um, it was a book I wrote with mostly with church leaders and pastors in mind. This new book, Analog Christian, is still at the intersection of the digital age, but it's more about who we're becoming. You know, discipleship or formation are are sort of you know the the popular words to use. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, it's just about who we're becoming in light of the sort of digital air that we all breathe. And, uh, it's not, it's not a book about being a Luddite and throwing away all your technology. That's not who I am. Some people think that's who I am. Um, but that's a misunderstanding. I, I have an appreciation for, for digital technology. I just think, uh, with all technologies and with all things really in life, we have to put them in their rightful place. So yeah, it's really a book about, um, how we can be mindful and thoughtful to invite the spirit of God to form us into the sorts of people God longs for us to be rather than letting digital media and social media and the digital age form us into people that we don't want to be. Mm-hmm. I just had on the podcast uh, a guy named Doug Smith, who is a software engineer, great thinker. He he wrote a book called Unintentional that talk that talks mm-hmm. about yeah more the just the the ad- addictive dangers of in particular social media, but I think just broadly, you know, smartphones and and other things. Um, it was talking to him. I mean, it was like you saw the social dilemma right on Netflix. Yeah. So he doesn't have yeah. Netflix. So he had, he hadn't seen, but he he knows about the documentary. But a, a lot of what he was saying very much um, was was similar to what you um, what we saw in that in that movie, which was frightening. That that yeah. I mean, and it's if if it's even half true, that should raise all kinds of alarm bells. But I don't yeah. see any chance. I don't know. I think people. Here's my. I guess I'm. I, this is getting to a question. It it, se- it seems like a very urgent matter that we are being co-opted and used um, by, for lack of better terms, big tech or what, whatever you want to call it. And it, we keep going. We keep doing it. We're 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 like enslaved to these devices and social media. We know it's producing more anger and disunity in the church, and and it's yeah. not. It's leading to anxiety and depression. And I mean, and yet we just keep on going like what do you do you address some of that in 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 the book and yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think that's probably a universal sentiment for most people at least living in the modern west sort of shackled to their digital devices yeah i mean we're we're addicts right most people are digital addicts we most people don't want to admit that or or they don't recognize it um you know there's like all sorts of studies done uh the average smartphone user i think um, touches their phone like 2,500 times a day. They, you know, iPhone, um, Apple actually just released some data a year or two ago about the average iPhone user unlocking their phone. I think it's like 150 times a day. That's average. And nobody, when people hear those statistics, nobody's like, oh yeah, I do that. Everyone's like, that's insane. What all those crazy <laughs> people out there. But if you actually kept track, like literally counted, you'd quickly realize, no, that's you. Like (laughs) you probably open your phone 150, 200 times a day. And we just don't know it because we're so addicted. It's so pervasive and ubiquitous in our lives. And, um, you know, it's interesting, right? That word addict comes from a Latin word that, you know, in the Greco Roman world was, was used to describe slaves. It was a legal term used in the court of law to describe when a person would be deemed the property of another person. So to be an addict is to be a slave. And that's exactly what you said. We are truly enslaved to these devices. And so I think awareness of that, you know, people, it's so interesting. The social, the social dilemma on Netflix, I think it was like the number one documentary on Netflix for several months running. 
And um, I they've done some studies about it was like tens of millions of people watched it and globally. And they did some studies shortly thereafter, like, did it have any sort of real effect yeah. on people's smartphone usage? And, and you know, it's kind of early to tell, but the early data shows like, no, not really. So it's interesting. There's a real distance, you know, a chasm between information, knowledge, um, like knowing the stuff. And like you're saying, I felt the same way. It's like, this is frightening. It's alarming. It's frightening. Um, this is, you know, it's an, it, it's a major problem. Uh, that's destructive in so many ways. But but when it comes to like, what are we going to do about it? We just don't, we don't do much about it. Because when you're an addict, it's pre- like addicts know, addicts know that this is destroying their lives. And yet they keep going when it comes to alcohol, for example, they just like can't help it. They keep going back to the bottle. And I think we're in a very similar sort of precarious and like you said, frightening situation. So what have you ever preached on this? Or I, I wonder because I don't. It's it's typically not like a pulpit conversation, and yet I, I would suggest and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, addiction to s- social media is is one of the main hindrances to discipleship in the church, and we saw this when every yeah. single pastor I talked to, you're a pastor, I can ask you the same question: like, what was it? How, how difficult was it discipling your people in 2020? And why, why is that? It wasn't like, oh, it's hard to prepare a sermon or people had theological problems. It was like debates about masks and lockdown measures and the race conversation yeah. and politics and stuff that all comes down to what's the steady drip that they're getting from whatever social media outlet or whatever. Um, so much yeah. of it went down to that, right? Like that's why people were angry yeah. and divisive. And if, 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 we, if there was no like internet, <laughs> we would have just had a, just the pandemic, just the pandemic, you know, to worry about, yeah, but yeah. we wouldn't have all the division in, in, in the church and families. Um, yeah. So I, is that, is that an overstatement that, that, I mean, figuring out a better way to not be enslaved to something that is, just really, de- I'm destroying the church might be too strong, but dividing the church is probably not strong yeah. enough. I mean, no, I, yeah, I agree with you. I agree totally. So to answer the first question, yeah, we, we, at our church, we have preached on it and actually we also drip in, you know, um, the influence and formational power of social media and news media and the digital age. We drip that sort of thing in all the time. So it's in the air, it's it's in the, it's in the cold, it's in the air of the church that like, this is people are just, there's an awareness of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you were to ask our folks, Hey, how often do the teachers here talk about social media and digital media, news media, um, I think if, if for folks who are around for for a bit and pretty regularly, I think most of them would tell you like, oh, yeah, it comes up quite a bit, actually. And for us, it's not because we're trying to like touch some hot button issue. It's because we think it's so formational. It is like it's so ubiquitous. It's just the air we breathe. Therefore, what that means is it's forming our people. So if, you know, it's interesting, um, Neil, Neil Postman, I think a lot of listeners will at least know his name. Um, Mm -hmm. He was writing, gosh, 40 years ago, 30, 40 years ago. But if you read his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, it's prophetic in the sense that he, it feels like he wrote the book two two days ago. Yeah. I've said this. And he's got this. Times, yeah. He's got this whole thing about um, how technology has changed 
ideas. And we see this today in ways that he didn't even see when he was writing the book. But he basically talks about how like the telegraph changed everything, right? Late 19th century, um, uh, Samuel Morse, famous for the Morse code. Yeah. He develops the telegraph, right? Like electrical wires and you can send signals. And now you can send ideas and information across long stretches of land and then eventually even across the sea because they, by like 1890 or something, they had developed a line between America and Europe, so across the Atlantic. And now with so much immediacy, you can share ideas and information. Well, before the telegraph, the fastest that information could travel was like 35 miles an hour on a train. <laughs> yeah. So what he talks about, what Postman says is, before the telegraph, ideas, because they traveled slow, ideas were, were almost always local. And therefore, ideas, ideas and information, it was almost always local. And it was almost always for the sake of doing something with the idea or information. Like it was pertinent to where you lived and the people you were doing life with and how it affected your town or your neighborhood or whatever. And you had to do something with it. And then he says, the telegraph introduced a whole new thing. And he calls it it, it introduced the idea of ideas and information as a commodity. And then he talks about how television took it a step further right. and it turned ideas and information not just into a commodity, but into entertainment. Right. And now you think about the internet and you're talking about division amongst Christians and all these arguments we have online about X, Y, and Z. And it's like, the question I always have is you're screaming, we're screaming at each other online but how does this make any tangible difference in the in your house, in your home, your neighborhood, your workplace, your church, your city? It's it's like it's a mm. fascinating thing, and it's formational, right? We yeah. we've we've just sort of become enraptured in this um, you know milieu of ideas as commodity and entertainment, and now really as like bullets in our digital guns, you know, or just like right. shoot each other in the wild west of the internet <laughs> for no good reason. <laughs> while like our real lives aren't aren't being formed in the way that we want them to. So um, I think po uh, Postman was really prescient in that way. And I think we, we need to take heed of that yeah. and, and consider how the Internet is is forming us. Someone just told me that they're one of his students because that, that's the you know, the book is so prophetic. And you're just like, oh, I wish he yeah. was still alive today to write part two. You yeah. know, um, but somebody told me one of his students did write a book, I think ten, maybe 10 years ago. Kind of saying, oh. here's what po here here's how this would apply today, or something like that. Have you heard of that book? Mm. Um, no, I haven't, but I'm gonna look it up now. Yeah, I I, don't, I forgot the name of it, and I looked at the the sales rank, and it's like it's not, it's like in the millions, or so it's not. It doesn't seem like it's a really popular book, but um, yeah, I I, I would because yeah, that book. I mean, Postman. It, I mean, this, I've said this a lot. That it's it's like he was writing yesterday. Like how the things he said, and he was talking about television primarily, right? That that the 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 medium of television shapes the very thing we're doing. It, it is created yeah. um, an entertainment industry out of uh, news, right? Because you want somebody that's good looking yeah. on the whatever. You need to capture attention. It, um, and then and then fast forward now to even the political arena. Now so much of it is performance, right? And so when yeah. people treat it as anything other than that, I think that's that's wrong headed. But um, so I, I'm, I'm going back to your church because I th this is 
identifying the problem is pretty easy, but I'm like, how do we, how do we alert people to the, again, the discipleship ecclesiological dangers of having this steady drip of um, propaganda or whether it's a news outlet or just social media or people just vying, vying not just for your attention or your wallet, which they are, but also your affections. Like they want you, they purposely want you to be angry because that's going to keep you on there. They want you to be addicted. They want you to keep scrolling and keep we know this. How do we wean people off it? So when when you said this, I'm I'm curious. Well, both you say you have preached on it, but also the kind of steady drip. Can you talk yeah. to what does each of those look like? The preaching and the steady yeah. drip. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, you said some of the words. Those are verbatim words we use here, and you know, for some people, it might feel like we're talking about it ad nauseum. It's just like, oh my gosh, okay. this again. Because we sort of repeat ourselves like a broken record. But one of the reasons is because we just our people keep and myself like self-indictment here. We just all keep doing the same thing, you know, so we just like keep repeating what some of the words you said, like these these technologies and these tools, they're not um, neutral. They're non-neutral technology. So it's it's very different than a hammer, like a hammer just like any technology, a hammer can be used for good or it can be used for harm. But a hammer doesn't sit there and blink and glow and ask you to pick it up for no good reason, whereas the smartphone does. And it's in our back pocket. And um, the hammer's utility is super clear. But a smartphone, because of the way it's designed now, I mean, think about it. How often do you use your smartphone as a phone? It's like very rarely. Right. It's it's kind of silly. We call it a smartphone. It's a computer in our back pocket. You know, it's access to to the World Wide Web. And so um, we talk about a lot how the this technology in particular is vying for your attention, your affection. And then we take it a step further. And what we say is ultimately what it really wants is your allegiance. Right. It wants you to bow at the altar of technology. And it doesn't call itself technology. It calls itself all sorts of beautiful things like it being connected and um, information and, you know, being up to date, whatever, all, all that kind of stuff. So, So the way it looks for us is we've done like a mini series on formation and technology, some of it sort of out of my book. Um, And then really for us, just as a church, we – and different churches have different sort of modes of operation, just our our sense for our people here in Silicon Valley. um, We think discipleship to Jesus, formation into Christ-likeness is of utmost importance. We feel like that's, as a church, that's what we're sort of called um, to to call our people to. So that makes it really easy for us because we talk so much about formation into Christ-likeness. It gives us very open access and avenues to talk about, well, what are the things that are forming us? Okay. And and that almost always comes down to a number of things, but one of the things is um, digital technology, social media, news media. So that's why it it comes up um, quite a bit. And, and then the, the other thing we, we've found really helpful, sort of um, borrowing from, you know, like guys like Jamie Smith, um, we talk a lot about how just knowing stuff, information is critically important, right? We value robust, rich theology and biblical narrative, all those sorts of things. We've got to know that stuff, but knowing it 
doesn't change you. You've mm. got to allow the knowledge and the information. Um, you've got to participate with it. Mm. You know, those are Peter's words uh, at the beginning of one of his letters. You've got to make every effort, right. participate with the Spirit of God, with the knowledge that you have. Um, and and what that does then is it reorients and reforms your desires. And I think that's really at the heart of the matter for us. We're trying to figure out a way and it's, you know, it's a slow and steady process. It doesn't happen overnight, but we're trying to figure out a way where we can help our people begin to desire the wrong things less and less and desire the right things more and more. So when it comes to digital technology, one of those, one of those things might be to desire um, engagement in the sort of social media landscape less and less. So one of the things we've invited our church to do is like the one a month challenge. <laughs> so we, it's like so hokey to call it that, <laughs> but it just makes sense. It's like we, we invite our folks like, hey, for the next year, can you delete or have like a net negative of minus one on the number of apps on your phone? Like at least every month, can you delete an app huh. and just see how, how that goes? And a year from now, hopefully you've got 12 laps, less apps on your phone than you did a year before. If you just keep going, I think what you will find is, no, like you can manage and live a rich, meaningful life without all of that, all of that clutter hmm. uh, on yeah. your smartphone. That's just constantly vying for your attention and affection and allegiance. So. Yeah. Have you, have you seen people change? Have you seen the last couple of years or whatever, like an improvement in people's, I mean, it's hard to measure, but I mean, yeah. Um, Anecdotally, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anecdotally, as I talk to, I mean, I just think about like the small group I belong to. There's nine guys. It's like 18 of us. It's a young married small group. Like the husbands get together one week, the wives another week. So out of the nine guys, four of them work at Apple <laughs> and then <laughs> two of them work at other tech yeah. companies. So like two thirds work in tech. They're like in the business of making this stuff that so ubiquitous in our lives. And yeah, we've, you know, we talk about it quite a bit and, and as, as we talk about it, yeah, I've seen it, you know, I've, I've seen these sort of incremental, but really profound and beautiful changes in some of our lives as like, and it's little things, but it's the little things that are big things. You know, it's, it's stuff like, yeah, like I'm spending more time with my kids or I've got this practice in place where now I come home and. Um, there are no phones outside of sort of the kitchen. So we have a docking station in the kitchen. Yeah. We leave our phones there. And from the moment I get home till the kids are in bed, the phones are away and we're just spending time together as family. These sorts of little things I think, um, I've seen and, and, uh, it's, I, I think it's had a profound impact. It's had a profound impact on my life, but I've watched it have a profound impact on, on their lives as well. So, and it goes beyond that. It goes beyond my, my small group. Um, so yeah, anecdotally we've seen, we've seen progress and that's, I think worth celebrating. Did, did you guys face, um, yeah, as a church, a lot of the kind of just divisiveness like, since 2020, really? I mean, and I don't, I don't know, yeah. I haven't really talked to people much about it in the last like six months has it died down has it gotten better but i mean gosh during 2020 i mean people were fleeing ch this church for that church because of different responses to the pandemic or they were you know they yeah they were preaching politics too much or not enough for the wrong kind of politics. i mean it was right. just it was it was it was pretty disastrous some churches it was disastrous i i, I talked to a, yeah. a small handful of pastors that said it was difficult but it you know wasn't you know, we, we, we got through it. Most pastors said this is the most difficult pastoring I've ever had to do. Did you guys face a lot of yeah. that? The just a division over all the hot button issues? Yeah, we, 
We for sure did. You know, as I talked to pastor friends of mine around the country as well, I think where we are, we had a, a situation that I think is has been common in, in other cities like ours. Um, our church, so during the pandemic early on, we committed to doing everything we could to continue fostering what what was already a very strong relationship with our county and our city. So we just said, okay, no matter how hard it gets, we're going to do our absolute best to sort of work with them and adhere to um, the rules and regulations. And I, I'm in Silicon Valley, so which is in Santa Clara County. We were actually the first county in the entire country to shut down. Oh wow! And we were the last. We were the last to totally open. Wow! And um and and that had a that had a tremendous effect on churches, obviously. But we tried our best to adhere, and we did adhere to county rules and regulations. We would tell them like, hey, this this is why we feel like it's unnecessary, or this is making it really challenging for us. But we're gonna do what you're asking us. We just need you to know, like, if there's a little wiggle room here can you work with us sort of thing? And they were actually pretty generous, but all of that to say, like other cities like ours, there was one church in our town that did the major sort of like, this is the devil, the government is Satan, and they are trying to squelch the work of the spirit. So we're not doing anything. We're going to gather, we're going to jam pack our room, no masks, nothing. (laughs) And we're going to sit extra close to each other. I serve it. Yeah. I serve at a church that's, you know, fairly large. We had, it's, 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 uh, it's not an overstatement to say we had like hundreds probably of people upset that we were not gathering. And then when we gathered that we were wearing masks and they left and they all went to that one church. So that <laughs> one church, uh, I don't know how they're doing now. I, you know, I, I just don't think anger is a good way to build a community, but that's my opinion. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, they went from like, ah, gosh, I think pre pandemic, they, they had maybe like 300 people or something. And I heard at one point they had to go to like three services and they had like 1500 people or something. So like everyone, every angry Christian that was like, no masks, COVID is a lie. They all sort of gathered in this one place, you know? So we certainly had that. The political stuff um, was challenging too, but it didn't hit us as hard. I felt like we, we navigated that decently well. Um, but still, you know, we, we had some, some effects with, you know, social justice issues and and all of that. So we've definitely felt it, but we, we did a survey, uh, like nine months ago at our church and 50% of our church has been at our church three years or less. So like half our church is like pandemic people. So it's a, like the internal mantra for our staff right now is, Hey, we're learning a new church in a new city. Mm-hmm. And it's a new city because here in Silicon Valley, we had a mass exodus in the last few years, people yeah. just moving away um, up to Boise, Idaho and other <laughs> places, you know? So um, yeah, it's a new church in a new city. And that's that's been really exciting for us just trying to figure out, you know, what this new chapter looks like. Yeah. And, but yeah, you mentioned Boise. We, we get a lot of Californians here, a lot of people from yeah, Oregon, Oregon, Washington. Well, it's funny because the the natives here, the native to Boise, um, they just think, oh, California, that's a liberal state, and all these liberals are coming up here. I'm like, you're not getting the liberals, dude. You're getting the hardcore no. conservatives that are willing to uproot and move states for po- political yeah. reasons, and they're not. <laughs> Which I, I, if I, if I think politically, it just seems that this post pandemic shuffle um is going to make red states even redder and blue states maybe perhaps even bluer um yeah i don't know 
whatever who cares yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what do you um yeah what what are you i mean what are you doing to prepare your people for what will probably be another very divisive election cycle in 2024 is is this something you're anticipating or you said you weren't hit your church wasn't as divisive around politics as much as maybe some other churches so so maybe it's not a huge huge thing you need to anticipate or yeah i mean no, we're we're still we're still bracing for it. If I had to guess, I mean here, Santa Clara County, Silicon Valley, San Jose, it generally the area is a very blue, it's very progressive liberal. Um, if I had to guess, this is very anecdotal uh about our church, I'd I'd probably guess if people had to lean one way or the other, like if you forced them to politically. Yeah. My guess is that our church, our congregation would be like 60% blue, 40% red ish, something like that. But I actually think the majority of our congregation, like 80% of our congregation is more along the lines of like what Jonathan Haidt calls the exhausted majority, you know, um, they, yeah, they have some leanings for okay. sure. Like if you if you were to say like, okay, what about this issue or that issue? Sure, you could kind of shade them bluish or reddish. But I think the majority of them are like, dude, I'm I'm just tired of this. Yeah. <laughs> I just okay. want to. I just I want to get along, and I want to move forward. And I'm here not because the pastor is going to tell me to vote for this guy or that guy. I'm here because I want to figure out this Jesus thing, you know? And so if there is some criticism that's lobbed our way, it it might be something along the lines of you're not talking about politics enough. Although I would suggest we talk about politics a lot. And uh, I think it's a political statement to say, and we say this all the time, like the path to human flourishing does not run through the White House. It runs through the cross at Calvary. Our allegiance is not to an elected official. Our allegiance is to Jesus as king. Those are literally words we say probably every <laughs> Sunday in yeah. some form or fashion. So I think that's how we're trying to prepare our people. Um, yeah. And we're, you know, if we're ready for anything, I think we're ready for the loss of those who are going to be angry because we're not making blatantly political statements in the way they want us to make them. Um, and I'm okay with that. You know, there are other churches in the area that do that and, you know, God bless you as you go there. Um, but yeah, generally I think our church is made up of the exhausted majority and we're just going to try to serve them well. Where did Haidt talk? Was that in a righteous mind or was that more recently? Um, the no, where majority. I first read it wasn't it wasn't in one of his books. Um, although he might have talked about it in in Coddling of the American Mind, but he um, I read it first in an Atlantic article he wrote that came out probably oh. six months ago. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I forget the yeah. name of it. It's something along the line. The title was great. It's something yeah. along the lines of like why the last ten years of America <laughs> have been so profoundly stupid or something yeah. like that. So <laughs> this is a great yeah. article. I, I don't think I read the whole thing. Incredible. Yeah. yeah, he always does that. He'll drop these bomb articles in the yeah. Atlantic like once every few years, and they're just so prophetic. <laughs> and then he writes a book about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, talk to me about your book, Analog Christian. Um, what's uh, I mean, I was looking at the table of contents, but can you walk us through it? And uh, what do you hope the readers will walk away with? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. I, I just I'm trying to identify some of the symptoms of of our digital addictions. And there's there's like probably dozens of them. But I just I mean, 
the, the book is a is a much more personal book than than my first book. It's it's really I wrote it as a prayer and as a confession. Mm-hmm. So I identify I identified these symptoms of the of my own personal digital addictions mm-hmm. over the years. And um what I discovered in sort of long before I was even gonna write this book, what I discovered was that, you know, Paul's really profound words in his letter to the Galatians, you know, that famous passage about the fruit of the spirit and these beautiful characteristics of the spirit's fruit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As I, as I sort of pondered that reality, what I realized is like, oh, if the spirit of God can have his way in me and form me into the sort of person God longs for me to be, and that leads to my life bearing the sort of fruit that only the spirit of God can, can grow in me. Those characteristics of the spirit's fruit, man, those are the antidotes to so many of the symptoms I experience in the digital age. So essentially the book just breaks down. Like if the spirit of God moves in us, we're going to experience love instead of self-centric despair, joy, instead of comparison, peace, instead of contempt, patience instead of impatience, kindness and goodness instead of hostility, you know, faithfulness instead of forgetfulness. And and by forgetfulness, I don't mean like forgetting where your keys are. I mean, forgetting that Hmm. it's a real human on the other side of this thing and forgetting that our allegiance is to Christ, not to information or data or whatever, you know, gentleness instead of outrage, self-control instead of reckless indulgence. So those, those symptoms are all symptoms that I just, I was experiencing in my own life over the course of many years as I found myself sort of continuing to spiral into my digital addiction. Hmm. And as I began sort of asking God prayerfully, okay, God, I want to, I want to be freed of this. Hmm. I want to, I want to live a liberated life where, where I can still use digital technology, uh, where I don't need to run from it, but I can, I can put it in its proper place. So help me to do that, you know, and help me to do that by your spirit, you know, cultivate this fruit in me. And, and it's a process that obviously I'm still in. It's a process I think I'll, I'll continue to be in for the rest of my life, but I have experienced in the last several years leading up to the book and then writing the book and releasing it. It's true. Like if we give ourselves over to the spirit of God and what he wants to cultivate in our lives, uh, liberation and freedom from Mm -hmm. our digital addictions it is possible and 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 it really is that's the life we really want to live yeah. you know so so that's the book that's you yeah. know the book came from that own sort of self diagnosis and and i'm hopeful that it'll it'll be helpful to some what 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 like can you tease out what your addiction digital addiction looked like like what was it for you cuz i know everybody probably has different things whether it's a certain social media platform or just news or whatever yeah for me it was primarily email and then oh. um twitter Okay. I, I found myself incessantly checking my email and it wasn't because I needed to, it was, you know, when I began doing some self work, I realized it it was actually, it's just, I think this is common for a lot of people who do the same. It's just like deeply connected to my own insecurity and my sense of significance. And, you know, every time I got that dopamine hit of like the ping of the email, it was like, Oh, I matter. I'm important. If I don't address this, then everyone's screwed. So, you know, it was like a lot of that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, I mean, social media, um, Twitter specifically, not that I was posting a lot, but I was finding myself 
doom scrolling that thing and and my entire <laughs> worldview being framed and shaped by um by my you know feed that the sort of machine algorithm was feeding yeah. me you know so um email i don't yeah, typically and- i don't typically hear email thrown in there but when you're i can totally see that that you know quest for significance or somebody reached out to me or what about the you know what it's almost or it's almost like a is there some new email that's like a, a book off or this or that or yeah. some some kind of like yep. status elevation or something or a positive review? I, yep. I there's all kinds of stuff where you could like every time you check it, it's like oh, is there something here? Something here? Something here? You know, I can totally yeah. see that. Yeah, it was it was totally that. It's it's essentially like the slot machine, right? I yeah. was like a gambling addict sitting in the <laughs> casino and I'm just pulling that lever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, is it going to come up like, oh, there it is. There's the email that affirms, you know, my mm-hmm. significance or whatever. And um, yeah, so that that's that's a big reason why I wrote the book, actually. <laughs> and then Twitter. I recently I've been, I've been pretty good for the most part. I don't like scroll like I'll post stuff. I'll check notifications, you know, who commented, whatever. And even that I'm like, ah, I probably shouldn't. I don't need to do that, but I don't, I don't, yeah. I wouldn't say I, I spend a much time at all on it, but I would say in the last few days, for whatever reason, I've been yeah. hitting the home th- thing where I just look at, I've been kind of scrolling, you know, kind of in a bore boredom. Yeah. And I I'm reminded again, how much of a cesspool it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like though. Yeah. And then it's sad. I was just talking about this to um, Doug Smith on the podcast of the day. Like it's, it's so because I mean when you do if you do that a few times you begin to see the kind of same people just living on like Twitter is their world and I'm like oh yeah. my gosh because I I mean I yeah. get a glimpse of it and it's like Ugh, like can you imagine if this is this was like your life and like oh my gosh for some people th- this occupies a huge part of their emotions oh, yeah. their connection their involvement like this is their world you know. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. like, that's, that's just so it's sad and eerie. like, Oh, that's so it's, it is, it's sad, you know? And, and yeah. you just live in a constant state of anger and bitterness and yelling at somebody. And ugh. Yeah. did you, did you experience, is yeah. that kind of what you were talking about? Like you, you got sucked in. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I mean, again, I, I would not wade into those waters by like posting and replying a bunch, but yeah, I did find myself just glued to the interactions yeah. and you it's, know, it's entertained. There's an entertainment factor yeah. there. I mean, <laughs> Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. And there, there's like, I would find myself sort of like feeling so much contempt inside in psychology. They talk about how contempt works up and down. You know, they say you envy up and scorn down. And I found myself doing that on Twitter all the time. What, do you, wait, like can, almost what does that mean? Post. Can you, can you explain that more? Envy yeah. So essentially the way contempt works, contempt is always directional, right? Contempt is not, you don't hold contempt for yourself. You hold all sorts of other things toward yourself, you know, insecurity or, I mean, I guess sometimes there can be like, this gets really destructive and dark for people when they, you know, it's like, this is really dark, but like suicidal ideation comes from in some ways like self-contempt. Like okay. I can't bear, you know, I'm so angry at at me sort of thing. But generally speaking, contempt is directional. So it, it extends out from me to someone in a particular direction. So in the world of psychology, they say it depends on the direction, but when you feel contempt towards somebody that you sort of in a strange way admire or revere, but 
but you feel contempt because you long to be where they are sort of thing. Okay. What you, the way the contempt looks is envy. So it's interesting because we think envy is like, oh, they should be flattered. I envy them. It's actually a form of contempt. You actually have a real sense of like envy and contempt dance together, you know? So that's what contempt looks like toward those you sort of, you know, admire or revere or think you do. And then they talk about how contempt toward those that you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they would, or yeah. I can't believe they said that scorn. It, it, you just scorn down. So envy up, scorn down. And in, in so many ways, I think Twitter is just, when, when people use Twitter that way, that's literally what's happening. You're just envying up. I mean, like huh. Instagram, as another example, is a perfect example of this. Instagram is like the envying up sort of machine. You're just constantly scrolling the feed, envying everybody, but it's actually a form of contempt. You know, you're you're planting seeds of real bitterness toward these people. Yeah. For like no fault of their own. Like it's not their fault. They're just posting whatever it is they want to post, but because you constantly scroll the the feed you're starting to build bitterness. Like why doesn't my life look like their life? And it's a sort of envying yeah, up yeah. and then scorn down. This happens a lot. I think on Twitter happens a ton on Facebook, you know, where, especially with political things, yeah. you know, it's just like, Oh my gosh, did you see what so-and-so posted about such and such? And it's just scorn. It's like complete contempt, you know, and you're, it's so dismissive, you know, and, um, and there's all sorts of like neurological things happening when we do that. Um, and those things have been tracked and mapped. It's not conjecture. It's not hypothetical. It's like neur neurologists have mapped it. Yeah. Like there's stuff happening in our brain chemistry when we do that. Um, that's killing us. It's destructive, you wow. know, but it's also hyper addictive. Yeah. Like most things are, you know, like smoking cigarettes kills you and it's hyper addictive. Yeah. <laughs> Drinking too much alcohol kills you and it's hyper addictive. Yeah. And uh, and so it is with social media. Golly. But it's it's I think we get away like we don't treat the addiction to social media as severe because it's not a chemical. Right. Like we're like, oh, yeah, maybe we, can, yeah. we could joke about being addicted, but no one would say uh, like, yep, yeah, I'm still addicted to crack, you know, <laughs> you know, and move on, to, you know. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's kind of a yeah. socially acceptable addiction and people don't, because it's not a chemical, people don't see how harmful it is, but it neurologically, as you said, it's just incredibly harmful all, all the way down to all the way down. Even if you're not actually addicted to say a social media, whatever, just that constant checking, it, it is lowering, right? Is I mean, you tell me lowering our, even our attention span, our ability to concentrate. Like yeah. I, I've noticed this and I, I, you know, I, I, I might be in the category of somebody who, you know, scoffs at people who check their phone 150 times a day. And I probably check it maybe 120 times, you know, <laughs> I, I, I do in my honest self-evaluation. I think, I think I'm probably below. Yeah, for sure. I'm below average, but I still higher than I would like to be for sure. So I've noticed in my life, like reading a book, especially I, I have to put my phone somewhere else. Otherwise. Yeah. Or even when I'm reading and I'll see a footnote, I'm like, Oh, I should probably order that book and I'll go to the phone, order it yeah. and check Twitter and like, yeah. Oh, I got a message on, you know, and you can't be, you can't that for somebody like you and I and other people who are in like our job is deep work. It is deep thinking. It yeah. is, you got to get, you got, you have to be, our, our jobs res, result revolves around being able to concentrate. Right. I mean, whether it's preparing a message yeah. or thinking through something or, or in a counseling situation or whatever. So has that been pretty much proven that, 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 
it's really diminishing our, our attention spans and our ability to kind of do that yeah. kind of deep, thoughtful work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when you say deep work, I think a lot of people think of Cal Newport because he yeah. wrote a book called yeah. Deep Work a few I, I years was, ago. Yeah. And, and it's a fantastic book. And he talks about si- science-based, research-based. He talks about how he's got this phrase that I found so helpful. He calls it frenetic shallowness. And he says, and this is not him sort of waxing poetic. This is him talking about what the science is revealing to us. He says, the more and more you wire your brain for frenetic shallowness. And frenetic shallowness Mm. is exactly what you're talking about. You're reading a book, you see a footnote, and you're like, oh, I got it. And then you like break your train of thought from the ideas of the book and you go to your phone, Amazon is like, oh, it'll be really quick. But what we, what Cal Newport talks about is like, no, it's not that quick because the way your brain works, it, there is a gap and a chasm there. It takes time for you to snap out of, and then for you to re-engage deeply, it's not immediate the way you think it is. Like your eyes are looking at the words on the pages of your book right away after you order the book on Amazon. Your mind though is not engaging the way it did when you had been sitting for an hour reading and for you to get back to that state of mindfulness and deep thought, um, it takes a lot of time. But the problem is before you can take that time to re-engage, there's another footnote and you're like, Oh (laughs) great. I got to get that. And then there's a text and you're like, Oh, one, one quick second. Let me just text back. And then you're bored and you're like, well, I just tech Instagram really quick. And that's (laughs) frenetic shallowness, you know? And when you do that, the the real danger, Cal Newport says, um, and uh, Nicholas Carr in his book, The Shallows, he gets deep into the neurology of this as well. The real danger is not just what's happening in that moment. The real danger is neuroplasticity, which is like a fancy way of saying – some people have heard the phrase like um, neurons that fire together wire together. And what the, all that means really is your brain is – there's plasticity to it. So it can it can change and rewire. And what Newport and, and Nicholas Carr and others have said is the more and more you ingrain yourself in frenetic shallowness, that's not just a problem when it's happening. Your brain now is rewiring, mm-hmm. one, to desire that sort of frenetic shallowness, and two, to, to decrease in ability and aptitude to do deep work. Mm -hmm. So I totally agree for you and I, especially for anybody that does deep work, like they have to think deeply about ideas. We are living in precarious and dangerous times, you know? And, um, I think the loss of boredom is another big one. You know, you think about waiting in line for something. There's some research that's being done recently that's showing that uh, boredom is actually one of the most important pathways to creativity, like deep creativity. And so there's some people are starting to say like, we may, we may have, we may have passed the most creative era in sort of human history because nobody is bored anymore. And we may see like just less and less creativity in the generations to come, which is, you know, sad. I mean, just utterly tragic. So yeah. That that part when you're talking earlier about yeah I I I read the book a while ago Cal Newport's book which I would highly recommend to anybody listening um super eye opening and I made some changes in my life after reading that and I slowly drifted back into just kind of a, a bit more scattered just not 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 being as vigilant 
to be able to engage in deep work, which uh, I want to get back to, into that. Um, cause yeah, I just, is, is it as simple as like, he even said, you know, like sh- shut off your email. Don't be online. If you're, if you're doing some writing, thinking, don't have your phone nearby. Um, have you found that to be largely a huge first step? I mean, um, to, to, yeah. to get back to cultivating yeah, better rhythms of deep work? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think this is descriptive, not prescriptive necessarily, because I think, you know, people are different and you got to figure out what works for you. For me, that's totally true. So just to get super practical, when I'm preparing a sermon or writing, you know, whether it's a book or an article or something, or doing anything that requires me to sink deeply into thought. And um, it's always structured in two different sort of modes. So I have research mode. And when I'm researching, I've got the internet up and I've got my Kindle with, um, you know, my books and quotes. And I'm doing all of that work, but I, I never write in that mode. Like I'm never writing words that are going to that are, that other people are going to read. I'm literally putting together notes and the notes always look like sermon notes, whether it's an actual sermon or a book or, or an article or something. I just put together a bunch of notes, but when I write, like when I have to sit down and do the, like research is deep work as well. But when I want to do like put my soul into writing something, yeah, I turn off my internet. I have no internet connection. I print my notes like paper notes. I print them out. And then, um, I just have a silly program. I paid like 10 bucks on the app store for, uh, called write room, like write room, W R I T E room, all one word. And it's so dumb, but it's so profoundly helpful. All it does is it blacks out my computer and it's literally just a cursor and words and a black screen. That's it. So I can't see anything else. My phone is away and I've got my printed paper notes and then I'm just like writing and tweaking Interesting. at that point. That's been hugely helpful for me. Okay. That's good. Going back to Twitter, I'm curious, this is a change the subject. Um, what are your, do you have thoughts on uh, Elon taking over Twitter? Oh my gosh. Well, it's like, it's right here in my neck of the woods and my brother-in-law used to work for Twitter. Oh yeah. So he and I were, he and I were just talking a couple of weeks ago and I was asking him, he hasn't worked there for several years, but I said, man, do you still have colleagues or friends there? And what are they saying? Yeah. And he said, yeah, yeah, he does. And it's interesting, you know, this gets to the social media thing. He said, yeah, I mean, Elon seems like he's crazy and sort of like nuts, <laughs> but He's not the sort of what my brother-in-law said was he's not the sort of crazy that social media and news media is making him out to be. He said that just makes for a really good news story. And uh, it's so funny because it's all over Twitter. So it's like helping Elon with his own (laughs) bottom line kind of thing. But he said, actually, there is a sort of sensibility in what he's doing here. Like uh, and and my brother-in-law was talking about in not all big tech, but in um, social media tech companies, his experience has been, and he's been in that space for a long time, his experience has been that there is a lot of um, sort of ideation that isn't really work. It's just kind of walking around talking about how they're <laughs> going to change the world. So he said, I think, you know, his opinion, Elon's just cleaning house and yeah. trying to bump up the bottom line. So I don't know, man, I don't know what's going to happen. Like there's all of the, that's kind of the business side of it, but there's, you know, like the free speech side of things. And 
Yeah, I don't know. One thing I think that's been helpful for me is like it's been a good sort of reminder like, oh, God has done some good work in me because I have thought about like, oh, what if Twitter just completely shuts down? How would I feel like even even just with some of, you know, you and I, we we create work that, you know, is is public. I mean, you create really public work. Some of my work is somewhat public and it's like, oh, what what would happen? You know, will publishers be upset because I there's no Twitter and we can't, you know. And I, I realized I don't really care yeah. <laughs> like if Twitter went away tomorrow. <laughs> I, I don't think I would bat an eye and that thank the Lord for that, yeah. you know, because I don't think I would have been in the same space a couple of years ago. Well, what was so I, I did see people talking about is Twitter going to shut down or all that? Like, where's that? What's that based on? Because he yeah. just literally spent billions of dollars a buy. Why would it shut down? And it seems that the stats seem to be it's at its highest user level it's ever been. Like what? Is that just random fear? Yeah. Stuff or I, I don't, no, but I saw several I, people I, talking I about that. Like, fear has, I think some of the fear has gone away. What I read was, um, one, some of their, some of their highest level engineers were resigning. And then two, there was one specific team, uh, and there's some sort of backend team that if they don't, if they don't do what they're supposed to do, the application itself wouldn't work. And that entire team, I don't know if that means like hundreds of people or a few dozen, but supposedly the rumor on Twitter was that <laughs> the entire team collectively um, resigned. So, ah. so I think when all of that st- stuff started buzzing online, it was when that happened. This okay. particular team had stepped down and they're like, oh, this thing might shut down tomorrow. But it didn't. You know, it didn't. Yeah. That's the point. Still, like going strong. Well, he's so. pretty smart. Whatever you think about it, he's a pretty smart dude. I, I would hope he'd. Yeah. If he spent forty billion dollars, whatever, he would figure out how to run the app. I don't yeah, know. Exactly. But, um, but, I mean, I don't know exactly. that whole world. <laughs> yeah, the whole. I mean, because I'm so um, just not invested in the culture wars and stuff. To me, it, it is almost like you know, I treat it almost like watching a TV show because it kind of is. You know, the old postman, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's like so. To me, yeah. it's just there's just an entertainment value, like. Yeah, I never. I mean, it's. I, I've been scrolling his account here and there, and it's like actually, if you're not invested, you just, if you just don't really yeah. care too much, it's actually really hilarious. Like he's, <laughs> <laughs> like people complaining about the the blue check mark thing, and you have some disgruntled person yelling, and he's like, "Thanks for your feedback. That'll be eight dollars." <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. it's hilarious. Totally. Like it's so oh, funny, and people. People think that like yelling at Twitter is really gonna make it really gonna affect Elon Musk or like he like as if he like stays up late yeah. looking at all the critiques on Twitter or whatever. It's it's yeah, honestly, <laughs> honestly, whatever you think about him, it does seem like he's sort of having a good time. Oh maybe yeah, that's that's what it is for him. That's I don't hilarious. know. That's hilarious. That there's there was a <laughs> he found a bunch of like stay woke T-shirts in the back room at Twitter. I don't did you see this? And he posted a video like uh-huh. what I found, and then the next post was a t-shirt with the same shirt stay woke it was but it has to hashtag stay at work <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh that's so good. funny and that just drove people so <laughs> mad it's like oh why course. are we so invested like who cares you guys but anyway yeah, it's so funny exactly I, my my original thought again having maybe half a percent of my emotion even wrapped up in caring about it is Twitter was already a huge cesspool. Like I don't can it, I can't imagine whatever he's gonna do. Whatever you think about him, it's gonna be 
worse than it already has been. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, bro, I got to hop on a plane here in a few minutes. Yeah. So it was great talking to you again. The book is Analog Christian Cultivating Contentment, Resilience, and Wisdom in the Digital Age. Well, dude, you, I mean, you're kind of my go to when it comes to stuff like this. So I'm super glad you're still writing and speaking on it. So thank you for your work and uh, hang in there, Pastor Kim. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Preston. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.